Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, first, I apologize for the very loud mic, or maybe it seems it's loud to me. Uh, I'm Hannah Thoburn. I'm a research fellow here uh, at the Hudson Institute and focus on Russia and Ukraine. Thank you very much for joining us today to talk about a, a, a topic that's really been in the news a lot this past week, to talk about the situation of anti-corruption and reforms in Ukraine. Uh, we're now at the four-year anniversary of the beginning of Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity, the Maidan protests. And to many, it looks as though Ukraine's reform agenda has stalled. In the past months and weeks, there's been a number of rather high-profile clashes between certain of the anti-corruption elements uh, in the Ukrainian government and certain of the law enforcement organs. And it's not terribly clear how the situation will eventually uh, unfold. Uh, thanks to a lot of public pressure, both from the civic uh, sector within Ukraine, as well as uh, pressure from international financial organizations, the Ukrainian government has made a lot of, of really important progress, introduced an open procurement process, created oversight and enforcement bodies, required public officials to declare their wealth and assets, but it does seem as though progress has slowed uh, recently as some of these specialized anti-corruption agencies that were created at the behest of pressure from civil, civic and international organizations have come under attack from parties both within the government and from some also of the oligarchic interests that remain uh, entrenched in the country. Ukraine's independent journalists have been at the front line of this fight, exposing corruption amongst uh, the Ukrainian security services in the government uh, and in the oligarchic community, but they've also become increasingly subjected to attacks from hired thugs, even from the security services, and it seems clear that a concerted effort to push back against the reform agenda, particularly the anti-corruption agenda in Ukraine, is afoot. So to talk about this, this topic today, we've got a terrific uh, and distinguished panel of speakers joining us. Uh, first, uh, to my left, Natalia Sedletska is a, an intrepid investigative journalist with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's Ukrainian service and the host of Schemes, Corruption in Details, a program that runs on Ukrainian public television and details day by day individual schemes that are removing money from the pockets of the Ukrainian society. Uh, she was previously a Václav Havel journalism fellow and worked for Kiev's TVI television channel. Uh, she's a member of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, as well as the World e Economic Forum's Global Shapers Community. Emmanuel Matias is joining us from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, where he is a deputy of the Financial Integrity Group in the legal department. At the fund, he's been coordinating the work on financial integrity issues in the context of surveillance and lending and has been working on anti-corruption and anti-money laundering issues in Ukraine since 2014. Uh, finally, Joanna Rohozhinska is the senior program officer responsible for Northern Europe at the National Endowment for Democracy and has been engaged in programs in the post-communist space for the past 17 years, living and working to advance um, good governance in all of these regions for the past 17 years. I'm going to ask each of our panelists to open with five minutes of remarks um, on, on this topic and their particular section of it, and then we'll move into a discussion and then take 
uh, questions from the audience. Natalie. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming and uh, thank you for the interest to events in Ukraine. As um, it, it, it was shown in previous days that the attention of the Western institutions is really important and it really brings changes and helps in our country. Um, as it was said, now my uh, team, um, which consists of uh, six to seven uh, investigative journalists, uh, we produce a weekly investigative television program about high-level public uh, corruption. Um, it is supported by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty um, Media, um, and um, we are on air every Thursday um, on prime time, and we actually get a lot of feedback in Ukraine. Um, mainly positive from the audience and supportive from the audience, but mainly negative uh, from those people who we report about. And um, uh, those are politicians and kleptocrats who are actually running the country now. Um, we do have a lot of influential enemies, unfortunately. For the last uh, years, independent investigative journalism uh, became very important force in fighting corruption. Uh, for the countries like Ukraine, where there is no rule of law, um, investigative journalists play important, uh, a very important role. Um, but a little bit of history to understand the context. Um, in 2014, as a result of the revolution of dignity, uh, Yanukovych, previous president Yanukovych um, regime uh, fell down and he left to Russia. Um, we have elected a new president and we really had a big hope that the system will be changed now. And uh, I, I must admit that at, at, at it was a few months after the revolution when uh, we decided to create, establish a new investigative anti-corruption program. And I nearly had a doubt uh, if, we, uh, if we actually need such a program, or probably we, we won't have any more to report uh, about. Uh, that was naive. Um, we do have enough material to report about every week. Uh, for the last three years, uh, our program produced 150 episodes, um, and it, it each consists of one or two investigations. Uh, but now, um, as you've seen in the news, um, there are big tensions in our country. I would call it uh, corrupt counter-revolution. President Poroshenko and his allies put under their control all countries' resources and institutions. And he wants to keep in power for the next uh, term of presidency. Um, but then there are a few problems that he's facing um, that are standing on his way in, in this idea. For example, independent media, like us and our colleagues. Uh, for example, um, um, uh, the, the same applies to anti-corruption activists and young politicians. Uh, we are all are now under intimidation campaign, um, smear campaign, um, and under some kind of threats. But the biggest problem of uh, kleptocrats in Ukraine for now uh, is National Anti-Corruption Bureau. It's a totally new institution uh, that was created after the Revolution of Dignity uh, with the Western support, obviously. Uh, Nabu proved its independency uh, and th that it is independent from president um, or other influential people in Ukraine. Uh, which actually goes in contrary to all other existing law enforcement agencies in Ukraine that represent old system, um, such, such as uh, General Prosecutor, Prosecutor's Office or uh, Security Service of Ukraine, who mostly concentrated on making money and uh, persecute opponents of those in power. 
Uh, but as for Nabu, uh, whose detectives uh, were trained and are trained by uh, US FBI, for example, um, they arrested a head of uh, uh, tax service of Ukraine. Um, they catch on bribes members of parliaments, and it's not, not, not something that is you know, very usual in Ukraine. Um, one story uh, which is connected to our media. Last year, we published an investigation about son of Minister of Interior Affairs. His name is Mr. Avakov, and he is now actually the uh, second uh, most influential person uh, in the country after Poroshenko. Uh, we showed that son of Mr. Avakov got uh, governmental um, money, budget money, from a ministry that his father uh, leads to deliver backpacks for the army. There was no fair tender procedure. He just received this money from a budget because of his father's position. Pure corruption. Um, after this, Nabu opened a criminal case. And just recently, they finished the investigation and they have detained the son of a minister of uh, uh, Minister Avakov. Um, and after, the, after this, I think corrupt elites decided to unite against uh, Nabu to kill it. Um, and to, at least to kill its independence and so, as soon as possible. Um, this fight now is led by the general prosecutor um, of Ukraine, Yuri Lutsenko. For example, a few days ago, uh, he unclassified few of Nabu agents, uh, which um, undermined few of uh, Nabu investigations. But what's the plan? First of all, they want to dismiss director of Nabu. Artem Sitnik, who is uh, right now uh, as well in D.C. Um, few criminal cases against uh, Mr. Sitnik uh, already opened by General Prosecutor's Office. Today, the parliament should have voted for a new legislation that would allow to easily uh, fire Sitnik without even making an audit of his work. And it have not happened, uh, and because of mainly two reasons. First, the pressure of the civil society, and second, the EU and US institutions that are openly stood for Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. Um, but the goal is there, and they will look for other means how to kill anti-corruption movement in Ukraine, because Poroshenko and for his team is a question of survival uh, and possibility to further enrich themselves in power. And it may cost Ukraine its European future, uh, because it's only Russia who is interested in weak, poor, and corrupted Ukraine. So the fight is ongoing. Thanks, Natalie. Emmanuel. Good afternoon, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, now I'm glad to, to uh, discuss the, the, the work of the IMF on anti-corruption issues in Ukraine. I represent a, a group of um, 40 uh, IMF staff uh, working on financial integrity issues, mostly anti-money laundering, containing the financing of terrorism and uh, the related crime uh, as corruption. And uh, the main pillars of our action relate to uh, three elements. The first is uh, the annual checkup the IMF does with uh, each and every of its uh, 189 members. We call that surveillance to ensure that uh, economic stability uh, is, uh, is maintained. Uh, the second uh, element is um, part of the lending programs. Uh, when uh, we consider that financial integrity issues may be relevant for the success of a program, uh, then we discuss these issues 
with authorities. And finally, we deliver quite a lot of uh, capacity development uh, to assist our member countries uh, to strengthen uh, their firm framework on financial integrity and anti-corruption uh, issues in the context of the policy recommendation we make in surveillance or in the context of the measures agreed with the authorities in the context of uh, fund-supported programs. Um, maybe to step back quickly, uh, why corruption matters for the IMF? Um, because uh, of its economic and social costs, um, corruption uh, negatively affects inclusive and equal growth. Uh, and uh, it's usually transmitted through uh, different channels, such as uh, uh, fiscal performance, delivery of public services, uh, market regulation, financial sector oversight, and also uh, public order and enforcement. And corruption can lead to reduced investment. Uh, it's uh, also produced poor social outcomes, such as uh, this, uh, this, uh, this distorted allocation of public resources for social welfare, health, or education. And uh, as we have seen in the context of uh, uh, Maidan in 2014-2014, it can lead to uh, social unrest. Um, why is corruption in Ukraine particularly important to the IMF? I think here it's, it's interesting to, to, to quote uh, our first deputy managing director. In, in 2015, he said that Ukraine since independence has been a story of too many lost opportunities and too much disappointment, economic mismanagement and alpha-fed reforms holding back growth, corruption and oligarchy undermining the market economy, and episodes of voter fraud and abuse of power undercutting democracy. Um, that's in this context that uh, when we started the discussion of a new program with the authorities in 2014, uh, the, the staff of the IMF held meetings with public sector, private sector, um, NGOs, uh, different stakeholders, business community, uh, to, to, to understand uh, the situation related to, to, to corruption and to, to try to find a way with also the experience of eight previous programs we had uh, with uh, Ukraine since 1991 uh, in order to, to, to ensure that we can assist the countries to build sustainable efforts to address corruption and to address that uh, in a situation where from the beginning we, we knew that vested interests were uh, important. So the, the approach we, we had from, from the beginning was uh, to, to target building independent and robust law enforcement institutions. Uh, why? Because uh, initially when we started the, the work, we did uh, diagnostic, we, we looked at what was working, what uh, has been achieved in the, the, the past 20 more years of independence, and we realized that one of the main issues was uh, that even if sometimes the laws were in the books, uh, implementation was lacking, particularly uh, with regard to uh, corruption by high-level officials. And that's why uh, we focused our effort uh, in the discussion with the authorities on building a strong law enforcement uh, institution, starting uh, with agreement on an independent uh, anti-corruption bureau, the NABU, uh, and then on a special anti-corruption prosecutor. Um, th these uh, were established together with another uh, element that we, we uh, supported uh, the authorities to, that's the 
asset declaration for high-level uh, officials, uh, the, the public nature of uh, the asset declaration, its comprehensiveness was, in our view, a way to, to support uh, effective uh, investigation and prosecution. Of course, as you know, the, the authorities' um, efforts uh, to address corruption has not, have not gone without uh, challenge. As I mentioned earlier, from the beginning, the IMF staff, the authorities also, in the diagnostic they, they published uh, in July 2014 on corruption and governance, identified vested interest as, as a real uh, issue. And, and of course, you, you, you can imagine, we, we heard that uh, some strong uh, interests do not have uh, an incentive in the success of uh, strong uh, anti-corruption uh, bodies. Um, <clears throat> this said, uh, looking ahead, uh, the, the IMF uh, will continue to support Ukrainian authorities uh, on building on the progress uh, made so far. Um, for, for us, uh, an important reform coming forward, going forward is the anti-corruption court, because it's good to have an investigative bureau, it's good to have prosecution office. Uh, it's important that then uh, the cases are adjudicated by uh, judges that are perceived as independent and, and trustworthy by the public. It's also important, uh, as we agreed with the authorities, to strengthen uh, the independent powers of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, including to allow the, the Bureau to have uh, access independently to special investigative techniques, uh, such as uh, wiretapping. Um, so uh, to, to, to conclude on these uh, initial remarks, uh, for, for sure a lot has been achieved over the last four years. Also, we can certainly consider that uh, we are at a crossroad uh, moment. Uh, it, it's important, certainly, to, to continue to build on the, on the, the different momentum. It's uh, uh, important uh, for the authorities to be supported uh, in their action uh, against uh, vested uh, interest, uh, particularly when the, the, the reform uh, bite, actually. Um, and uh, the, the, the IMF and the IMF staff uh, continues to be, to be ready to support the authorities in this path uh, towards addressing corruption. Thank you. Joanna. Thank you very much. Thank you to Hannah and thank you to the Hudson Institute for inviting me here today for what turns out to be an extremely timely panel. It's not that anti-corruption has not been on the radar for the past four years, but somehow this past week it got brought to the fore, especially in the past 24 hours. You know, coming off of the exhilaration and tragedy of the Maidan, it's worth remembering four years later what motivated so many people to come out, and a lot of it was this desire to curb corruption and for justice and for governance. The way that we look at anti-corruption is that we do look at it as part of governance as a whole, and so there's lots of different attendant pieces to it. Um, all of the transparency moves, all of the efforts to try and make the procurement system and open the government as much as possible have been incredibly laudable, and I would say that some, some fabulous steps forward. On the other hand, having institutionally Ned has been involved in Ukraine since the early 90s, so this isn't our first rodeo either, and we've been through this cycle before. Consequently, we were quite aware that, you know, one of the first discussions that we had with a lot of activists coming forward with so many ideas was to try and curb expectations a little bit, understanding that this is a very long process and a difficult road that they're embarking on. And the challenge for many has been how to maintain engagement over the longer term um, with all of the kind of 
obstructions, I would say, either institutional or personal, especially going down to the lower levels. Um, I wish I could say that what happened in the past 24 hours was a shock, but I have to say, if you kind of look back at the trajectory, you could see that from certainly the early spring, um, the pushback against anti-corruption activists coming from the regions on the way into the center has been has been steady. Um, this, I think, was just kind of a climactic and very public moment that all of a sudden shone into the face of the of the international community as well, understanding how deep-rooted the problem is. And it's good that they pushed back on this, but which doesn't change the fact that there's still a lot of other moving pieces. I mean, this is what has made Ukraine so exciting to work on in the past four years, is that you do get a do-over in almost every sector. Um, the linchpin for a lot of the anti-corruption efforts is the thing that I'm afraid has fallen off a little bit to the sideline and it's the fact that it's a lack of judicial reform. So the anti-corruption court obviously is incredibly important uh, to put in, but it has to be understood as a stopgap measure, right? It's a substitute, at least temporary, while the judiciary um, managed to get its act in order because in normal countries, the regular legal system manages to take care of anti-corruption issues in and of itself. Um, and so I'm worried that that will side off into the shadows a little bit. Um, I would also urge not to take the eye off the ball in other sectors as well. So today, I don't know if anybody noticed, but a very quiet reform got passed through the Rada that allows the president to independently appoint people to the Energy Regulator Council for a temporary period of three months, but nonetheless, it means that the game is open for the next three months in terms of who gets to sit on one of the single most important <laughs> sectors, uh, regulatory bodies in the country right now. Um, there's a number of other things as well if you start going out to the regions, but we'll talk about that I think in the question and answer a little bit more. Um, you know, decentralization on one hand is a fantastic opportunity. We see it as one of the key reforms in the country um, of devolving some of the responsibility down. And on the other hand, it does also leave an awful lot of scope for smaller corruption the farther that you get out of the oblast centers. So it's a dangerous situation where you have a mass of the population who are really pushed four years ago for a sense of justice. Um, and to have that disappointed, particularly in the overall context, leads to an overall destabilized situation. What the political machinations are going to be around it also are a little bit troubling. I mean, I would hope that the hope was that there was finally a government that realized that it would have to serve the people as opposed to a small group of elite. Uh, not recognizing that in an overall difficult situation could be something to watch and could probably or could possibly end poorly. On that positive note, yeah. you, know, you, you make a, a very important point, Joanna, is when I was on Maidan four years ago, one of the things people said that they were there to protest was not, we don't like Yanukovych. It was, we want dignity in our everyday lives, and we're tired of this group of people stealing from the country and taking away our livelihood and the money that should be going to health care is going into the pockets of an already very rich man. That I'm having to pay a bribe to get a driver's license or send my son or daughter to university and that money is being pocketed by, by crooks. And so that raises the question, are we headed for another Maidan, Natalie? 
Joanna Emanuel, is this something that because, yes, there have been changes, there have been great progress in certain areas, but I worry sometimes that it's not necessarily visible to the ordinary person on the streets. Is it a risk? Well, I think that for now, um, there is no one idea that is able to unite people to go on the street for a protest, and we've seen uh, this in, in, during this autumn. And to be honest, Ukrainians actually um, unite usually against something and not for something. Um, and those protests near parliament, when um, activists called people to come and protest for the creation of the anti-corruption court, there was not a lot of people there. So uh, this idea of uniting against something can really help. But what, what, is, what is that can be now? On my vision, the um, attacks uh, on NABU, on National Anti-Corruption Bureau, can be that issue that will unite people in Ukraine. Probably there won't be hundreds of thousands of people, but I'm sure that there is a lot of people who are ready, and we see it now from the recent events, who are ready even to go to the streets to defend new, just probably the only uh, good thing that was created after, after the revolution, a newly established uh, anti-corruption bodies. Do you agree, Joanna? I think that the bigger danger, if you're looking at elections coming ahead in 2019 than 2020 for the local level, um, is more people are tired and they don't see a viable alternative, which means retreating into apathy could be more dangerous in a way if you look at political actors coming up that are willing to harness those elements of society that are a little bit more extreme in their views. Um, it means that you don't have a mass protest, but you mean, it means that it's a destabilization of a different kind. Um, with a lot of the anti-corruption activists who I've met with, particularly in the regional cities, their level of disappointment in how far Kiev has let fiefdoms rise um, and corruption flourish in some of these fiefdoms, if you want to talk about Odessa, Kharkiv, Dnipro, for example, um, but with no real alternative, or the alternatives that do come out tend to be quite extreme. So, Emmanuel, you know, you talked about some of the successes that the IMF has had pushing Ukraine, uh, offering carrots to help Ukraine make some of these very difficult and, you know, politically um, hard decisions for them to make and to push through the parliament. And there have been some really important and very visible successes. But yesterday, the IMF director, Christine Lagarde, put out uh, a statement indicating that she was extremely concerned um, by what was going on in Ukraine uh, and said, you know, we urge the Ukrainian authorities and parliament to safeguard the independence of NABU. Uh, and SAPO and others, and we urge the authorities to move quickly with legislation to operationalize an anti-corruption court. This is not, as I understand it, a terribly ordinary statement for the director of the IMF to come out and say. So I, I have to intuit that there's some serious concern on the side of the IMF that these reforms are, in fact, being rolled back. <clears throat> As mentioned earlier, this, the, the anti-corruption pillar of our program with the authorities is a very important one, including 
because of the the, the past history uh, in the relationship uh, with, with the with the country. For for us, uh, efforts on anti-corruption is the key demand from the public. Uh, it's critical to achieve equitable and inclusive growth, um, and it's uh, part of uh, the commitments the authorities have made uh, at, in the context of the program. So this explains... Can, can you actually describe to us some of the commitments that the Ukrainian government has made under the most recent agreement with the IMF? So under the most recent uh, agreement, a, a key uh, commitment uh, is uh, the adoption of a law um, on the anti-corruption court, a law that uh, would allow to um, select judges that are perceived as sufficiently skilled and uh, independent by the public. And I, I agree with uh, the comment made earlier, it's a stopgap measure, but it's a necessary measure in a context uh, where uh, the judicial system is mostly perceived as uh, corrupt by the population to find a way uh, to have the cases that have been investigated by NABU, prosecuted by SAPO, then adjudicated in a fair and transparent environment. That's one. Uh, we have an, a, a number of other measures. There are four pages in the latest. Uh, I don't get there, but uh, if you are interested, you can go to our program documents. They are public, uh, and you will see the, the very specific nature of the commitments made by the authorities, uh, which aim really at making uh, real and sustainable uh, progress. I must say, uh, you, 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 you mentioned uh, that uh, it's unusual to have this type of statement, yes. But uh, you will also rem uh, remember that uh, last year, in February uh, 2016, there, there was uh, also a, a statement from the managing director of the IMF on the same topic. And uh, after that, uh, the authorities uh, did a number of uh, progress, including uh, the establishment of the special anti-corruption prosecutor, including uh, the, the, the asset uh, declaration that were made uh, public. Uh, so I, I think it's also important to, to see uh, this type of statement in, in the broader perspective. Joanna? Could I add something? Because I'm going to keep harping on the judicial reform. Um, and the anti-corruption comes into it as well. I mean, what the Ukrainian government has to do is it has to make people believe that it can govern, right? That's what's missing. People don't believe in the government, period. If they don't believe that in the government to utilize funds properly, they're not going to pay taxes. If they don't believe in the judicial system, there's no recourse for anything. Um, it's been the single biggest problem. I mean, I will say that we'll see what happens on December 15th when the new Supreme Court starts operating also under its new, um, under its new procedures. It's not bad. Um, it's a good start. I mean, the fact that the Public Integrity Council did have significant civic involvement in selection of the judges and the vetting of the judges, I think that the bigger problem to keep in mind is that since the Maidan, one-third of judges have resigned, which means that for the country that side, you've got 10,000 judges that are trying to operate. Um, so there's also a capacity issue on that end. But it's, it's, it's one of the key issues in anything that you're talking about in terms of building public confidence. Natalie. 
I just wanted to add about anti-corruption court, which uh, has to be created in Ukraine. You know, it's, uh, it, it is important, the only missing piece of puzzle uh, for, uh, for the anti-corruption reform. And uh, president and political elite in Ukraine are now really on a crossroad because on one hand, they have to um, do, do uh, regarding those commitments that were given to our Western partners like the IMF. But on the other hand, they do not want to create anti-corruption court um, because it will finalize all those investigations and persecutions that was done by independent uh, or, uh, law enforcement, uh, which is uh, not working now. Everything in, dies in, in regular co courts or just postponing forever. You know, th there is a question now why nobody is in jail, uh, even Nabu already two or more than two years operating. Because it's, the question is to the court because it's not created. So uh, president and uh, political elite do not want to create anti-corruption court. And they will postpone this idea as long as possible. Or uh, they could do um, uh, it as they usually do, uh, create those rules so that they can hire hired to this court people that will be dependent from the president. You know, so there was a very interesting um, moment at the uh, YES Forum in Kiev this September. Um, president Poroshenko was talking about how he did not want to create this anti-corruption mm -hmm. court, and he laid out a whole list of reasons and asked people in the audience to raise their hand if they came from a country with an actual anti-corruption court. And of course, there's very few that have such dedicated bodies. I think Slovakia is one of them. And uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry was on the next panel, and he got right up and said the very first thing, in, every, in my country, every court is an anti-corruption court. And I think that gets, Joanna, to your point that it is a stopgap measure. It's not something that, as an anti-corruption court, should, should continue for a very long time, but it is important to put that piece into the puzzle so you can start to build out a full system. But, you know, that's one of the reasons we titled this, you know, about revenge of the oligarchs or pushback from the entrenched interest, because as you say, Natalie, it seems very much that there's a, a kind of sense in the old entrenched interests in Ukraine that you've had your fun, nice anti-corruption reformists, and now we're going to push back. We're not going to take any more of this. Let's get things back to normal so we can operate as usual. How easy, though, is it for them to roll these back? Uh, and from the IMF's perspective, how solid are these reforms? Is it easy to get rid of them? We've seen just last night there was an attempt to change the law so the parliament could change the leaders of any of the anti-corruption boards, and that thankfully was voted down. But they did manage to remove the head of the anti-corruption committee in parliament, Yegor Sobolev. So how easy is it to actually make sure that these reforms stop? Can they be pushed back? Can they be rolled back? And in that instance, Manuel, what does the IMF do? Joanna, what does the US do? What does the West do? Natalie. Uh, well, they have plans um, and d different types of plans. For example, this le legislation didn't go through in the parliament, thanks for the pressure from the West. But then there are a few criminal cases uh, against the uh, head of Nabu already opened. You know, so it, they can fire him in this way. Also, why Mr. Sobolev was uh, 
um, dismissed today. Uh, because as a head of anti-corruption committee, he did uh, a lot to not let um, coalition, presidential coalition in the parliament, appoint uh, dependent uh, audit auditor for the NABU, who will, uh, you know, make an audit with uh, each with which it will be easy to dismiss Sitnik. So they 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 have their plan, and I'm sure that they're gonna be doing it. And Sitnik is the head of NABU, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, correct? Correct. Emmanuel, from your perspective. <clears throat> from our perspective, I think in order for the economic reforms to be successful, there needs to be real and sustainable effort on anti-corruption. Um, and, and so that's why it's so related to uh, the, the program uh, we agreed with the authorities. Um, and a key objective in relation to the rollback you, you mentioned uh, is to ensure that the institutions that are created in Ukraine are becoming strong enough to self-sustain themselves, um, to, to be able to, to resist pressure. Because in any country, when there are uh, investigation prosecutions against uh, high-level interests, there is pushback. That's normal. What, what uh, we have been trying to assist with other organizations, with other donors, uh, Ukraine's authorities, is to manage to create this type of institution that are solid enough uh, to resist the pressure. And certainly what we are seeing currently is a test. Joanna? So the disclaimer is that we don't, the NED does not comment on American policy and we don't form policy because we're not part of the government. So with that disclaimer, but I mean the statements coming from um, Secretary of State Tillerson over the past couple of days and also coming out of the State Department made it pretty clear that there's nothing off the table in terms of imposing conditionality uh, to ensure compliance on the side of the Ukrainians. Um, I think that it's really unfortunate if it has to go that far. Um, you know, the hope would be that Ukrainians had understood their vested interest in moving their country forward independently without following the carrot instead of dealing with the stick. Um, but we also hosted a group from the Reanimation Package of Reforms a couple of years ago, and sitting in on a number of their meetings, both on the Hill and and state, what they emphasized was the need for conditionality placed on US foreign assistance. So I, it's unfortunate that the stick has to take precedent over the carrot. Well, and conditionality has been one of the things that has seemed to actually work in Ukraine. Uh, we'll, we'll see if it continues uh, to work, but I think one of the things that's come up very recently is, well, Ukraine's actually doing much better economically. They're no longer in the dire financial situation that they were in 2014. So how much do these carrots actually work and how much more do we need to use the sticks? There was a, a tweet yesterday from former um, Defense Department official Michael Carpenter that got an awful lot of uh, attention. And he essentially said, if, you, if Ukraine does this and if it rolls back the reforms on corruption on the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, then I will advocate for the complete cessation of all aid, military, financial, in kind. And it, it got a surprising amount of traction, I think, here in the United States and potentially in Ukraine as well. 
Is that something we should consider, or is that a bridge too far? We want Ukraine to succeed, um, and cutting off all aid would seem to go against that long-term goal. Joanna? Um, it's really hard to say. Um, again, I think that it would be incredibly unfortunate. Um, I think that the difficulty is that how much good do you keep doing if they're working against themselves and they're working against their people? Um, and how long do you prop something up that's not viable um, and that's not advancing necessarily? So if you want to look at it from purely an investment point of view, then what's the return on it? It means that it undercuts the sustainability over the long term if you just keep feeding it out. I'm not advocating for it one way or another. It's a very harsh view, I think. Very harsh, yes. Um, I think that it depends how probably a more selective and strategic approach would make more sense. I mean, humanitarian aid stays as humanitarian aid, and I think that that tends to not be touchable. But if you're talking about strong advocacy for military aid, and you're not taking that off the table, then that could be more painful without necessarily impacting the general population. You don't want to penalize the Ukrainian people for that. Emmanuel, is there any... What, what are the IMF and World Bank's contingency plans for these kinds of situations? When, you know, this is the first time that Ukraine has ever made it past the second tranche. Yeah, even the uh, third one. Even the third one, yes. <laughs> so what, how, how in the past have you dealt with these, these situations when it comes to Ukraine? Look, first, in relation to your, your comment on access to, to financial markets, it's, for, for us it's good news. Uh, because uh, the goal of an IMF program is that uh, our member can stand on its own and go back to market. Uh, and that's very important, and uh, uh, that's what the reforms should help to achieve. But in order to be sustainable, again, our discussions with the authorities in the context of the reviews, now we have the fourth uh, review of uh, of the, the, the fund-supported program is to, to make sure that uh, this is sustainable over time, to make sure that there will not be any buildup of instability that would create, again, the, the need to, to come back uh, to, to us. So uh, we, we are there to, to work and to, to support the authorities and to explain, as needed, how um, deep and sustainable uh, structural reforms uh, can be implemented. And, and it's, it's generally for most countries, it's much easier to implement structural reforms when uh, you can breathe a little bit better, when you can access external financing. So it could potentially be a good moment to push in that direction. Joanna, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about some of the work that the National Endowment for Democracy does in the regions, the smaller towns, the smaller cities. We've talked about a sort of a larger view of Ukraine and focus more on Kiev and what's happening there. But it, do you see a rollback of the reform agenda, particularly on anti-corruption, in these smaller towns and cities? And then I'll ask you the same thing, uh, Natalie. How, are, are people pushing back on it? Is there a, a concerted effort to roll back some of the changes that happened immediately after Maidan. I was recently uh, in Mykolaiv in the southeast of the city where the reformist mayor has recently been uh, summarily dismissed, uh, and it seems by some of the old forces. 
So what exactly is going on? Is there a larger story? I mean, the, the wonderful thing about working in Ukraine and what's fascinating about it is that how different the circumstances are from oblast to oblast and sometimes within city to city. So it's really hard to say, to generalize, to say that there's a pushback across, across the whole country. It really depends on the local circumstances. Um, you know, that being said, yes, there's been incidents of anti-corruption activists being beaten in cities, um, you know, raids, summary arrests, and all the rest of it. And so I can't say that there's a super positive in a lot of places. Some cities are worse than others um, with entrenched interests, and some of them go back to the old system, and some of them, like Odessa, are their own special circumstance, if you want. Um, you know, Kharkiv also being an interesting model of very entrenched interests without a lot happening. Dnipro um, probably was the single biggest disappointment um, out of the bigger cities that seemed to have been making really big strides. And I was there this summer, uh, and the anti-corruption activists said there said that even though a lot of the tools had been instituted, implemented, the Prozora, the transparency, and all the rest of it, um, suddenly it was back to the future that their entrenched interests found a way to circumvent even the, the, the reforms that had been implemented. Um, but that being said, you do have some also interesting successful cases in the, some, of the, some of the regions where there's a critical mass that understands that their basic interests are being served by working together and the system is to serve everybody. So that's our kind of very long-term hope. Um, but that being said, there's, there's a lot of people are tired, I think, tired of not seeing Kiev take a more active role in implementing the reforms fully. And has that decentralization process that you mentioned earlier, has that helped or harmed the fight against corruption? Both. I mean, again, it depends a little bit on the locality. Um, and if you look at it from the longer term, it will probably work to reduce redu over the long term because at least it localizes the responsibility for the corruption. Right? You know exactly who stole from the kitty because they're the ones who are running for mayor next time around. So it personalizes it to a way, and it brings it down to a very human level, and so you actually can see where your money is supposed to go. Um, and depending on how the municipality is handling the um, budget planning and expenditures and how transparent they're being, again, it brings it all down to a very tangible human level. So I think that over the longer term, it's actually going to work out in the short term, obviously, it, it leaves a lot of room for theft because you can't monitor absolutely everything in every town, and it's not a small country. Natalie, I see you nodding your head and, and <laughs> in agreement. Is that is that what you see pop up in your investigations? Is that the feeling that your, your investigative journalists and your team gets when they're out in the regions? Um, I want to tell you one story about one of the reforms that uh, was um, uh, done uh, after the revolution. It's, it was called Reform uh, of uh, State Service in Ukraine. Um, and um, what was the idea to uh, get a commission, independent commission, who will uh, um, choose uh, the people to point on, on different positions in, in the government and in the regions as well. And we were covering the work of this commission, and we found out that it's completely dependent from the uh, administration of president, that th there is a direct uh, notes who have to be appointed here or there. And for example, um, uh, there was um, um, an appointment of a um, 
head of uh, Mykolaiv region, where you, which you visited recently. Um, and um, the president administration decided that it has to be uh, MP, his name is Savchenko. Um, and we were covering you know, the, the work of this commission while they were choosing who, who will become the head of uh, the Mykolaiv region. And he made uh, like 25 mistakes in, in his written presentation. Like, like very bad uh, knowledge of Ukrainian, uh, tests probably were uh, falsified, and, and so on. Uh, and he finally was appointed, even there were better candidates. So we showed it to people that actually this reform probably is not working that well, and, and probably this commission have to be much more independent. What happened next? The parliament voted for canceling a work of, the, or doing, of this commission when appointing head of regions. So now president just directly, he's, he doesn't have to hide anymore. He can directly appoint head of Ukrainian regions. Just like it was before. Just like, like it was before. And this is something that goes in contrary to the decentralization um, reform. And uh, I think it is connected to the uh, approaching of the next elections because this is um, a possibility to control uh, regions in an administrative way. And, and more generally, within the regions, are you, do you see certain areas that are more successful than others? We've talked a lot about problems here, and I, do, I want to make clear that, you know, I, I don't want to cast Ukraine as a problem child. We have our own problems too, but do, where are some of the successes you see in the regions? Are there good examples that are beginning to appear in some of these areas that can potentially be spread throughout the rest of the country? Well, I'm not an expert on decentralization reform, but uh, what I uh, can say for sure that uh, good signs from the region we receive from local um, uh, media and from uh, local um, activists. They became much more active, much more professional, and th th there is this movement from, from uh, roots, from regions that is going, uh, is becoming much, much stronger, and that are, uh, th they report now about local uh, officials better. I can say that like some regions that were so sleepy before all of a sudden started functioning, that local business got engaged constructively, I would say, with the local government and civil society and kind of, you know, the, the, the model for this cross-sectoral cooperation, as they say, in Khmelnytsky Oblast of all places, which was, we always kind of called it a bit of a desert, but I mean that all of a sudden that there's something there, that there's participatory budgeting and that roads are getting built and I mean that so there's, there's, there are some interesting positive examples. All right, so we're gonna move uh, to, to questions from the audience. So I would ask you to raise your hand, uh, introduce yourself when you stand, and please end your question with a question mark. <laughs> Always very difficult, I know. Um, but we'll try and take a couple of questions uh, at a time. So, uh, Oksana? And a microphone is coming. Thank you very much, Hannah. Um, 
I am Oksana Shuler. I'm a Deputy Chief of Mission of Ukraine uh, in the United States. Uh, Hannah, thank you very much for holding this event and keeping Ukraine on the ra radars. It's very important. I would like just very shortly to, if you allow me to uh, comment on, on, on remarks and then ask a question. Very shortly, please. Very shortly. Uh, Natalia, thank you very much for uh, your remarks and for your very interesting comments. You are um, basically uh, evidence that Ukraine has a very strong power of journalism, of investigative journalism and civil society. This is something that was born after Maidan and certainly has a very big support from the Ukrainian society and something that we are proud of. Uh, thank you very much uh, uh, to IMF uh, for, for a great support. Uh, it was um, crucially important for us to get the financial um, cushion and help and uh, Ukraine has actually, in the, in the recent years, received four consecutive tranches from the IMF, which is unprecedented. We never had it before. And it, I believe it shows the commitment of the Ukrainian government to uh, carry out sometimes very painful and very unpopular reforms, like it happened with increasing uh, household gas tariffs, uh, with the pension reform. So there has been a lot of good uh, developments and deliverables on the conditionalities imposed by uh, the IMF. And uh, Jana, thank you for also highlighting some of the positive things like the um, um, judicial reform and uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, there has been a lot of also um, sort of bottlenecks and weaknesses of it, but it, it, it has been a good effort uh, with the Integrity Council. Um, also, um, the, the energy uh, advisory board, there was an energy, uh, the, there is an advisory board which is introduced for Naftogaz, the biggest Ukrainian uh, state-owned enterprise which is responsible for supply and distribution of gas, and it's, uh, it's um, um, transparency and accountability is actually crucial for our energy system and energy security of Ukraine as a whole and the advisory board which was appointed and uh, there were many uh, th there are four uh, international representatives including from the US and Canada France uh, um, and uh, from the US side it is uh, former special envoy Amos Hochstein that third so it basically shows that there are reputable and very um, very knowledgeable uh, persons that are serving and uh, helping to ensure that um, we are moving towards transparency in our corporate governance. Um, just very uh, shortly also on the, on the regional um, appointment of governors, um, it, is, it is a very interesting take, Natalia. Thank you that you followed this um, situation, but uh, also our regions, and I think when uh, Mikhail Saakashvili was appointed as a governor of Odessa, he very shortly admitted that uh, the regional governor doesn't have that much, uh, according to our system, that much um, authority vis-a-vis uh, -vis the local councils and mayors which are elected and which have a lot of power in their hands to exercise the local governance. So uh, in terms of decentralization, Ukraine has a, right now a pretty um, good system of checks and balances. However, we have to definitely work to increase the transparency. My question is that um, recent situation which you mentioned with NABU and um, um, legislation, it's been very dramatic. It's been very dramatic and uh, I believe it is resolving towards some positive um, development right now. Uh, however, it revealed, um, it revealed that there is a lot at stake 
that there has been a durable, capable institution that can take on some serious cases. And um, that is a result of a lot of work done by Ukraine together with the American partners and uh, international best practices. Uh, also, it, it, it did reveal that the system is actually resilient and um, that um, Ukraine is um, reacting and is uh, following the uh, recommendations of the uh, international partners and that we are working together and that there is a dialogue and that we are moving forward to resolving sometimes traumatic situations. And finally, my question, and uh, apart from differences, well, Natalia, you were here taking also part in the um, Global Forum on Asset Recovery held at the World Bank, and uh, there were um, there is a numerous Ukrainian delegation representing the different agencies, and there were some good actually news that Ukraine has recently recovered 1.5 billion of uh, stolen assets from the Yanukovych uh, time, and this has been actually this operation was made together with different agencies, including the Prosecutor General, there is a newly created uh, agency for asset recovery, and many agencies were participating in this, including in cooperation with the international partners. How do you see, it is, this is a good example, do you see something more that can unite, actually, and that can bring this puzzle of different institutions together and make them um, viable and um, resilient and, and efficient. Thank you. Um, first of all, let me disagree that uh, the recovery of $1.6 billion of Yanukovych money to the, to, back to Ukraine was a case of success. Um, we and you, nobody, don't have access to a decision, a court decision about this. We don't have access to all those materials. Uh, how it was recovered, what was those money, and how it was stolen. We don't know answers to these questions because the court decision was illegally classified. In Ukraine, all court decisions should be open, but this one was classified, and still there are even um, um, so local community, local activists are uh, suiting general prosecutor um, uh, to, uh, to to open this cr uh, um, to open this court decision, because there is um, a, a big worry that in few years um, all those offshore companies who kind of lost those money that were recovered, they will sue uh, Ukraine in the, in the Western um, judiciaries, and uh, will uh, this money will again return to these people. Because we don't understand what was the procedure, how it was recovered. Mr. Lutsenko, uh, the head of General Prosecutor's Office, has to show some success. Uh, he was not succeeded to um, bring uh, all corrupted officials from Yanukovych regime to jail, and it was his responsibility. They dealt with them. They, uh, you know, have uh, closed a lot of criminal cases against those corrupted people from Yanukovych regime. But he had to show some results, also to compare his work to work of Nabu. And this was one of the results that he is now reporting about. But look what stands behind of this. We don't even have access to this decision. And this is not accident accidental. So, so you bring up something very interesting, this, like, this problem of shell companies. 
And one of the things we've been working on here at Hudson through our kleptocracy initiative is to talk a little bit more about ways that we here in the West can give more tools to Ukrainian civil society activists to help you in your fight against corruption. Of course, we want to extend those to, to the government as well. But what more can we here in the West do, in the United States, to, to make your job easier? We're talking about laws that would force, uh, say, owners of private jets landing in the state of New York to reveal their beneficial ownership. Sometimes it's small things. But the United States is actually also one of the largest uh, providers and builders of shell companies in the states of Delaware, Nevada, South Dakota. Is that something we can work on? What, what should we be doing here in the West? Well, absolutely. I think that offshore anonymity is still one of the biggest problems that allows taking um, stolen uh, assets and money out from countries like Ukraine and, and other corrupt countries. This is uh, those enablers. They are they are here actually, and in, in Europe, and we've been uncovering lots and lots of uh, luxury real estate, for example, in London or in Vienna, who is owned uh, by. Uh, no-name uh, offshore companies, and then we found out of, uh, with our inv uh, journalistic investigations that some of judge, Ukrainian judge, whose salary is uh, $200 per month, owns a luxury apartment in Vienna that cost a few million euros. Um, and uh, uh, such campaign uh, is ongoing in, in the UK, and um, uh, it, it is a movement for... Um, uh, closing offshore anonymity, and the idea is to not let uh, people purchase any uh, real uh, estate on the name of company without uh, disclosing the beneficial ownership of this company. Uh, I'm not sure if such movement uh, exists in, in the U.S., but this is something really uh, that can help. Just one example. Uh, Emmanuel, there's there's been you know the, I think this conference that Oksana mentioned. Uh, the, for this conference on asset recovery. It focused on four countries, and Ukraine was one of them. How are international institutions looking at the problem of asset recovery? Say we do recover two or three billion stolen dollars from Ukraine. What then do we do with that money? Do we just give it right back to the government, where it could potentially be stolen again? Do we send it to civic society organizations? How do we give the money of the Ukrainian people that was stolen from them back to them without making sure that it's again stolen, and we repeat the cycle over again. Yeah, <clears throat> the, the, the IMF is not involved in specific cases, but we, we really do care with the frameworks. Uh, and in this regard, as mentioned uh, at the, the, the beginning of my, uh, my presentation, uh, I, I'm part of a group that deals uh, with uh, anti-money laundering. And, and it's certainly key in terms of uh, framework to ensure that all countries, not only Ukraine, uh, implement the, the, the Financial Action Task Force standard. That's the international standard on anti-money laundering. And it includes uh, very specific elements related to the transparency of companies and the transparency of trusts. Um, because before discussing your question of getting the money back, <laughs> we need to find the money first. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in the case, uh, of, of many countries, and that was part of the discussion uh, yesterday at the World Bank, uh, an issue is to, to, to get uh, the money, not only to freeze it, 
but then to confiscate it. It's only after you confiscate the funds, the assets, that you are able to repatriate it. And it's already a very difficult uh, endeavor uh, to trace, difficult to freeze, and uh, actually uh, very unusual that major uh, amounts are confiscated. Joanna, your view. I know enough to know that I know very little about the topic, I would say, or also that, that it's also incredibly complicated. So this kleptocracy initiative, you actually do, um, Ned and Hudson Institute do, do cooperate on this, but it's handled in a slightly different shop. I mean, what I do know is that cases of asset recovery on average take between 10 to 15 years um, if they do actually come to fruition. That being said, um, having spoken to a number of European-based organizations, because of the Panama Papers, because of the Paradise Papers, there's actually a heightened interest, political interest in Europe to actually tighten the regulations, um, the sanctions regime on certain countries and individuals, freezing assets, asset, exactly, not so much recovery, but at least keeping them frozen until, unfortunately, and here's where the Ukrainian bit comes in, because it depends on the domestic prosecutors to prosecute the cases in order to make sure that the funds um, at least are retrieved from these frozen accounts. And then there's the you know, farther discussion as to how to redistribute them, um, to which there's not great models, I would say. But a lot of it, certainly in the European context, I don't know about the, about the US ones, but in the European context, a lot of the onus hinges on the prosecutors within the domestic countries demanding the money back and actually having transparent trials and transparent cases, understanding where the money's come from, how it's been misused, and so therefore it also facilitates identifying how it can return, but they can't be classified in that case. All right, we'll take some more questions uh, to the audience. Miroslava? Uh, hello, um, Voice of America, um, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I would like to ask uh, uh, Natalia a question about this Nabu uh, and general prosecutor um, clash, I would say. Um, uh, there's a, lo a lot of experts are saying that uh, possibly that Poroshenko doesn't want to really kill Nabu. He wants Nabu and, and other anti-corruption agencies to, uh, to exist but he wants to control them, and specifically at this particular time when before re-election, and he wants to, uh, to uh, ensure uh, all the financial streams for his re-election campaign. Would you agree with, uh, with that, uh, with that uh, notion? Thanks. Absolutely. He doesn't want to shut down Nabu at all. He wants to uh, control the director and, and uh, deputy director of Nabu. This is the, the goal. Um, and also, as I said um, uh, previously, the, uh, the head of this fight against the, uh, the leadership in Nabu um, is led by Yuri Lutsenko, the general prosecutor of Ukraine. Um, and we can see what their fear is. Uh, just recently, uh, they unclassified the uh, agents of Nabu. They simply went... Uh, they, they unmasked the identities yes, yes, of the, right. detectives or agents. Yes, and uh, they called their names on press, um, and uh, they went to the conspirative uh, apartments, uh, you know, the, the apartments. Oh, like safe, uh, safe houses. houses. Safe houses, yes. Um, uh, they put um, uh, cameras in there, and all this now is uh, a criminal case against detectives of Nabu. Um, and um, 
uh, this showed that these people in government, what they're afraid is they're afraid of agents who can come and record uh, how th th they are being um, offered by uh, bribe. You know, because this was one of the success story of Naboo when they filmed with agents how the members of parliaments are uh, agreeing to take bribe from the agent of Naboo, a big sum of money for uh, for, for some uh, uh, doings. Uh, so they are trying to destroy the, um, the the strongest part of Naboo, let's say, and one of it is this agents um, um, department, um, and of course they want to take uh, uh, under control the uh, the head of Naboo or appoint somebody who will be more dependent than Art uh, than Artem Sitnik. More questions in the back. Thank you. Uh, Nina Japariza with Edison Research. Uh, I have a question for Natalia. Um, you expressed quite a bit of disappointment with how you described President uh, Poroshenko and the groups that he's targeting and slowing down the reforms. Um, at the same time, you also said that uh, Ukrainian people are not necessarily coming together to fight corruption the way it should be fought. Um, None of you have mentioned uh, recent protests in, in Kiev, um, and uh, even though Saakashvili's name was mentioned. How do you see him? Uh, is he really a factor that is genuinely care, does he genuinely care about corruption and um, fighting corruption in Ukraine? Or, and does he have any support uh, or ability to galvanize anti-corruption movement on the national scale in Ukraine? Is he a positive factor or not for Ukraine? How do you see him? And the second question is media. Um, in Georgia, anti-corruption initiatives became really serious only after Rustavi II made it an effort to cover corruption on a national level. There were stories, there were exposures, um, uh, exposures of corruption and, and failure of ongoing reform. And that's when Georgian public realized that uh, corruption was slowing down positive change in a society. Today, Ukraine doesn't have, and it has a lot of media outlets, but still media is not ranked as free right? Um, national broadcasters are captured by various private entities. Where do you see um, the future of Ukraine's media, and can it play a role in bringing together the spirit in Ukraine that would galvanize uh, the support that you want to see for proper reforms and deepening of dem democracy? Thank you. So two questions there. Uh, first, on what exactly is going on with Mikhail Saakashvili, the former president of Georgia, who then became the governor of the Odessa region and is now in Kiev um, manning a series of protests, as best I can tell. Uh, but perhaps you can explain a little bit more about precisely what um, Mr. Saakashvili is doing right now uh, in, in Kiev. You may have seen some very sensational pictures of him threatening to jump off of the roof of a house. Uh, uh, being broken out of a police van, a lot of sort of very dramatic pictures coming out of Kiev. But what's at the root of that? And then the second on media as an agent of change within mm -hmm. Ukraine. Well, what's at the root of that is that Saakashvili is a big problem for the president of Ukraine, Poroshenko, because 
this is a person who gets people to the street, who is uh, on media demanding uh, things and anti-corruption reforms ongoing and so on. So, and, and he can lead protests. He can take people to the street, probably not to that uh, amount as, as uh, we, we can call it revolution, but still, this is but, a but is, is, problem. Is he, is he popular or is he simply uh, charismatic and brings people who are disaffected? Right, he's charismatic and he has a lot of fans uh, who, who, who really pr protect him now for going into jail, for example. But look at it on the other way. So there is a person who is a big problem for the president, his opponent. What the government and the law enforcement of Ukraine do? There is a criminal case now against Saakashvili with very, very serious topics that he kind of took money from um, an oligarch who ran away to Russia together with ex-president Yanukovych. So they accuse him to organize all these protests uh, by money of Russian, now Ukrainian Russian oligarch, right? And they show some tapes um, to people to prove that this money was given to um, a person close to Saakashvili. For now, we cannot say if those tapes are real. For now, we, we, everybody doubts that these tapes are real. And we'd like to you know, go further into this investigation and get more access to all this information about this criminal case. Who are those agents who uh, came to um, uh, Mr. Saakashvili right hand and uh, offered money from, from Mr. Kurchenkov, from this oligarch? Who, they also, they don't show the, uh, these agents. They don't say who these people are, who they were, were work, working for. Uh, you know, so for, for now, it's really, if, if he took this money from uh, Russian, Ukrainian oligarch Kurchenko, probably this is a big problem for all people who believed in, uh, in him and wanted to see the transparent financing of protests, let's say, at least in Kiev. But also, again, see it on the other way. What makes the difference between Kurchenko, this businessman who ran to Russia, Bazyanukovych, from, let's say, uh, oligarch Akhmetov, who not run away to Russia, who stayed in Ukraine, but was also uh, one of the main um, oligarch of Yanukovych regime. Those money that Akhmetov uh, made, uh, oligarch Akhmetov made, he also made it uh, together with Yanukovych when Yanukovych was the president. You know, so, but the only difference is that he kind of didn't go, run away to Russia. And Akhmetov now is the main point. Um, are now uh, very supported and, let's say, dealing with President Poroshenko. And there are many investigations about this, that Poroshenko uh, got him as a partner even. So this is a double standard, I would say. Uh, Joanna, do you have anything to add to that? I, I, I will add to not allow yourself to be overly distracted by that, because the fact still remains that Saakashvili's popularity is under 2%. Um, I think that if you want to start speculating on the internal baseball game of who's backing who um, and what the splits within Poroshenko's inner circle is and whose interest it is, um, again, it ends up being a little bit of a sideshow that's distracting from the main event, which is actually the reforms rolling forward. And the media lens. Yes, the, the question yeah. on the media. 
So the media landscape in Ukraine have, haven't uh, really changed for the last years after the revolution. As you know, um, the uh, main television channels are owned, um, and, and television is the main um, source of information for Ukrainians. So the main television channels are owned by oligarchs, um, and there are only few, let's say, independent islands of media groups uh, such as ours, for example, who are mainly supported by uh, Western organizations, grants, and so on, uh, who uh, actually deliver independent con uh, con content. Um, so the government is controlling those big television channels through the oligarchs. And in, they deal with oligarchs so they can influence the content of these big television channels. Uh, so this is the media landscape, but a good thing is that um, the work of independent media uh, is influencing the polis politics in Ukraine. Uh, especially investigative journalists, they really play a role because of um, cooperation with civil societies such as um, Anti-Corruption Ac Action Center, whose uh, uh, lawyers bring the results of our investigation and put them in a written form as an inquiry to uh, newly created uh, law enforcement agencies, who then cr uh, uh, launch criminal in uh, official criminal investigations. And what we've seen with the son of Minister of Interior Affairs, Mr. Avakov, who was actually detained uh, just a few months ago, this is also the example of um, result of uh, those in independent investigative journalists' work. Does social media? make any difference in trying to change that environment? I know, you know, as in most post-Soviet countries, television is really the main means of transmitting news, but as Ukraine has become more attached to its mobile phones, do videos getting sent around or live streams or Facebook, Kontaktia, which is, I suppose, now blocked, or Twitter, do those have any impact on the media scene in Ukraine? Um, yes, absolutely. Facebook plays a very big role now. Um, uh, but I would say that Facebook is a place where all politicians, ministers, and journalists live. You know? And also there is an audience, but internet is still not in every village, let's say. It's not. Uh, so um, this is a platform for... For the elite? For, let's say, yes, for, for those, for decision makers and those who, in, who, who can influence these decision makers. That's why there is a huge amount of trollers and bots, and every politician who has money are now hiring the companies uh, that are uh, you know, doing these campaigns for them or against somebody. Uh, it's, so Mikho Saakashvili has his own bots, let's say, trollers. Poroshenko has his own trollers and bots. Timoshenko as well, ev everybody. And we can see it uh, from comments every time uh, after our investigations are being published on any of these people. So it's the latest uh, accessory for any politician worth their salt is to have their own troll factory, yes? Absolutely. Uh, let's not tell Capitol Hill that. <laughs> if I can add one thing, because there was the question in terms of how media can mobilize um, around issues. I mean, I think I wouldn't necessarily agree that Ukrainian media is not free, but then again, I work on Belarus, so it's kind of what you're comparing it to, right? Um, the media ownership landscape is troubling, but the irony being is that it also guarantees a degree of plurality, <laughs> I think, um, which still doesn't sort the problem. I don't think it's, it's too, too bad. In terms of mobilizing, I think the problem is, is that you know, society at large understands that corruption is an issue. 
they don't like it. They, I think that the problem is the lack of recourse at this point, that four years on, there was a greater expectation is that since you have greater transparency, since you have great investigative journalists who can put together cases and submit them to prosecutors, that something's going to happen. Four years on, that's not the case. And so it's more, it's more the, the letdown in terms of a lack of recourse with all of these things coming up. I mean, if you do watch television, there's scandal after scandal. I mean, with the healthcare industry, I mean, it gets really depressing and how much can you see how much is being stolen on a daily basis. And it's not that people aren't aware of it, but it's the hopelessness and helplessness as to what do you do about it. One more question there in the back. John Kunstadter, Radzima Photo. Uh, this is more for uh, Pani Natalia, but I'd welcome the other panelists' comments too. Uh, first question, um, how much Kremlin influence is there in the, in the uh, mentality of, of the, the president, the presidential administration and, and the, the oligarchs. In other words, is this a problem of, of a generation brought up under, under Soviet occupation with a Soviet approach to the law, or is there a um, visible concerted effort by the Kremlin to, to help muddy Ukraine's image even further? Second question is, do you think that any of the main confessions, the three Orthodox churches, the, the Greek Catholic, Roman Catholic, or Protestant churches, are able to play a role in getting people to think about the, the damage of, of corruption and, and, and to uh, mobilize them to, to work against it? Thank you. So on this first question about Kremlin influence, or perhaps better said, Soviet mentality, I'm interested to have all three of you answer that, and particularly to hear, Emmanuel, how the IMF has, do you see a difference between the generations that you work with in Ukraine? Is there a kind of changing mentality? And how do you approach uh, that work? And, and the same question to you, Joanna, about the NED's work. Is there a generational difference? Does that Soviet mentality make a difference when there are, you know, when, when we're talking about questions of rooting out corruption, do you see, do you see um, a, a difference? And then we'll move to the second question. Well, as for the Kremlin influence on Ukrainian polis, politics, it's a very hybrid, let's say, situation. Uh, in times of war in the inst Eastern Ukraine, we still have people who rule some of the spheres in Ukraine. For example, city mayor of Odessa, who is proven to have a Russian passport. And secrets, Which is illegal under Ukraine. It's law. absolutely illegal, and it's not even um, American or Canadian passport. It's Russian passport, and Odessa is such an important um, city. We call it Ukrainian um, triangle, Lviv, Kiev, and Odessa, the, the, the most important pro-Ukrainian, let's say, 100% pro-Ukrainian cities. Uh, that is so important to uh, keep, you know, Ukrainian. Um, and um, it, it is led by a person who has Russian passport officially. And security service of Ukraine and General Prosecutor's Office close, close their eyes on this. 
The question is why? And, and there are many, m much more examples of this. For example, a very influential politics um, um, uh, in Ukraine is Viktor Medvedchuk. He was um, godfather, no, Putin was godfather of his daughter or vice versa. Uh, he's very close to Putin. Um, and Medvedchuk is very influential now in Ukraine. And he is the only person, by the way, who is allowed to fly on his private jet directly without stopover in Belarus or elsewhere uh, to, from Moscow to Kiev. The only person. Um, his bodyguards uh, just uh, recently attacked our journalists physically when they were trying to film how he uh, flew from Moscow to Kiev at VIP terminal uh, directly without stopover. And now there is a criminal case about this. So this was ju just few examples that, of course, there is a big influence. And the biggest question is to Ukrainian government why they close their eyes and agree with this. And on the question of the Soviet mentality, how does it affect the reform process? Uh, <clears throat> maybe I can take an example of uh, a specific example. As I said before, the IMF also provides technical assistance, capacity development uh, to, to our members to strengthen uh, the effort. And, and we do that also in relation to the laundering of the proceeds of corruption in Ukraine. We assist the National Bank, we assist the relevant authorities. And, and part of this work, we, we are faced with uh, what you, you qualify as mentality, but I would say as uh, assisting a um, shift in the, the culture from uh, an habit that is mostly by the bankers, by the supervisor, that has been historically to check the box, uh, to just uh, look at files and see if it's in or out regulation, and if it's in its Okay, if it's out reporting. Um, what we are trying to, to assist uh, the, the authorities is to come up with a more risk-based uh, approach, the, the, the way to, to look in the detail, to have a more uh, uh, fine-tuned uh, view. And it's not always easy, but it's not specific to, to Ukraine. And, and there, uh, there is the, 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 the Soviet, potentially Soviet, a mentality approach, but for us it's very important. It's very important that bankers, uh, when they have accounts uh, of uh, what we call politically exposed persons uh, in Ukraine, uh, they are able to identify uh, when behaviors are not in line with the expectation of the relationship. And when they identify that, that they report this information to competent authorities for analysis, and hopefully this would feed uh, when relevant to the work of uh, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau. Uh, but yes, this aspect, the cultural aspect, is an important one. Joanna, is yeah, it, I would, probably would you agree? Is I would it? concur. I think that, you know, 26 years on, um, every generation changes, right? I mean, and so you can see this everywhere, and it doesn't matter whether it's a post-Soviet country, whether it's an Eastern European country, whether it's a Western European country. The new generation coming up is just a little bit different from the older one. You know, the bureaucratic inertia also exists in every country. It just happens that the bureaucratic inertia in Ukraine has a Soviet cast to it. I think that I'd agree that there's a tendency to, there's a lack of proactivity often. There's a lack of, um, going out of the comfort zone in terms of taking responsibility for something and not worrying about repercussions coming from down. The, the hierarchy is very strong in every 
um, in every, whether it's a government structure or a non-government structure, ironically, um, that there always tends to be a very top-down approach to things, and it doesn't welcome much innovation coming from or interaction from the bottom. So I think that it's it's a, it's a cultural phenomenon that's not limited to Ukraine. Is it Soviet? Yes, but I also wouldn't exaggerate the point too much. Um, there's a, there's a strong tendency of that around Europe writ large, I would say. Um, but that's very different from America, for example. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the structural difficulties in Ukraine um, that also require reform in terms of the administrative reform, in terms of redundancies, which they don't know how to deal with yet, which are massive um, within the bureaucracy, also has to be loosened. And that's part of it as well. Yeah, I, I must say that I, I do agree um, that, that there, are, there are many more challenges that Ukraine has to face as it moves forward. And I do think it'll get past uh, this speed bump and hopefully that's all it is, is just a speed bump, these events of the past uh, few days and few months. But there are other challenges, as you just highlighted, on the road to fulfilling what Ukraine says it wants to be, in a full European country that is a part of, of the European system and can work uh, on the same standards as the rest of the EU does. And so there's a lot more to go, but I do think that you know one of the reasons we want to have meetings like this and, and uh, talk with our Ukrainian colleagues as well as our international colleagues is to highlight just how difficult this whole process is. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, turning Ukraine into a perfectly sanitized, EU-approved, uh, gift-wrapped package is not something that we can just snap our fingers and have happen. But it is a long path. And I, I thank you very much, Natalie, for the work that you're doing and trying to push Ukraine ever further, ever slowly, towards getting rid of the corruption that's been endemic in its system for so long. Uh, and I'd like to invite you to join me in thanking all three of our panelists for an excellent discussion today. Thank you.